Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. It's good to be with us, everyone, this morning. It, I, I was saying at the 8 o'clock Mass, I just, between a vacation and being out from the surgery, I feel like I've not been here for, it just feels, it feels like a long time. It's good to be back. It's good to be reunited. So before we get into the homily today, friends, I want to, uh, I want to do a quick little uh, chanting lesson for us, okay? You're not in trouble. It's not like you're bad at chanting. But I want to expand our chanting uh, I don't know, repertoire, chanting fluency in Mass. Because the vision of the church is that, that it's not that there should be singing in the Mass, it's that the Mass should be sung. It's a big difference. Um, that's the vision of the church, that everything that the Mass is, is to take the elements of creation, normal things, and to elevate them, right? So we have, you know, bread and wine that we bring here, and it gets elevated and becomes the body and blood of Jesus. It's not just normal human speaking. The church throughout the centuries has discerned that The sacred requires the elevation of speaking to the level of singing. So we chant a lot here at Sacred Heart, but I want to include a new element of the chanting, which is the the, uh, entrance uh, dialogue, the the opening dialogue. So it goes like this. Got our voices warmed up. Me, 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 me. We ready? Okay. So the priest would begin intoning the Mass in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the congregation responds, Amen. Let me cheer you. Try that by yourself. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with your spirit. Okay. That's pretty good. I'm proud of you. Okay, so next week if I bust that out, don't look at me like, what is he doing? All right? You have to participate. You have to participate. Okay. We good? All right, moving on. That's enough of that. There'll be more of that coming, coming up. So uh, before, again, before the homily, I just want to thank everybody for your prayers. If you prayed for me for my surgery, I had uh, uh, eye surgery on Tuesday of this week. It's my, it was my... 31st, I believe my 31st eye surgery. I need a new hobby, so um, I'm going to be thinking about what that's going to be this summer. No, I, uh, I've, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease when I was in seventh grade and have had all sorts of surgeries ever since, and this is the third time I've had this procedure. They put in a steroid implant in my right eye. I'll spare you the details, uh, but I'll just say Tuesday and Wednesday, it was, it was very painful. A lot of, of just all the nerve blocks wore off and I was just, uh, souls were flying out of purgatory. There was so much pain I was offering up. It was, it was amazing. Um, if you prayed for my mom, thank you for that because she definitely needed that because like I've told you, I'm not a good patient. So she, she, she appreciated those prayers. So, um, but yeah, so vision, seeing, all of that stuff has been, I mean, it's been a huge part, it's part of all of our lives, but it's been a huge focus of my life since I was in seventh grade, thinking about vision and how I see things. And, and so, like, that analogy of vision, that analogy of lenses, I don't know, it's been, it's been a very primary lens, if you will, for how I've understood things, especially interpreting Scripture, that we, we talk about different lenses for interpretation of Scripture, and the fancy word that Scripture scholars use to talk about these different lenses and say different prescriptions uh, is the word hermeneutic. So there's different hermeneutic, different hermeneutical lenses. 
um, for how we look at the scriptures. So the two primary hermeneutics, the two primary lenses by which I interpret scripture, and they're not just the quirks that I have, it's, it's the primary lenses of the church and the tradition are, first and foremost, it's the hermeneutic, the lens of, of spousal love, right? This comes through the whole great tradition of the church, summarized in a powerful way through St. John Paul II's teaching, known to the world as theology of the body, his articulation of what St. Paul calls the great mystery in Ephesians chapter 5, how the whole story of Scripture is telling this grand love story that God is not just merely interested in a friendly relationship. He wants something very deep, very personal, very, the least inadequate way to say it is he wants a spousal relationship with us. So that lens, but the other lens that's been uh, predominant for me is the lens of, of Judaism, that you can't understand Jesus, you can't understand Christianity apart from the lens of, of Judaism. You want to understand Jesus, look at him and interpret him through the lens of first century Judaism. I've been really inspired by the works of scholars like John Bergsma, who's down at Franciscan University, and another guy named Brant Petrie, who teaches at, um, I think he's in Louisiana. I could be wrong, but I think he's in Louisiana somewhere at a seminary. But uh, these two guys have really articulated very well the first century Jewish lens that makes sense of the scriptures. In particular, Brant Petrie has a book called Jesus the Bridegroom that if you're looking for a summer reading, Jesus the Bridegroom by Brant Petrie, P-I-T-R-E. I see that we're all jotting it down. Um, I'll wait. Go ahead. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Brant Petrie, Jesus the Bridegroom. So what I want to sketch for us this morning very briefly is something that kind of combines both of these lenses, this sort of nuptial spousal imagery theme and the Jewish uh, lens. And much of what I want to share, like I said, comes from that Brant Petrie book, Jesus the Bridegroom. So in the gospel that we have today, there's so many beautiful images, so many beautiful lines that we could meditate on, and I encourage you to do that this week. But where I want to draw our attention is where Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. We've probably all heard these words. I know we've all heard these words. They're beautiful. They're consoling. But it's so much more than just a quaint image. Without the Jewish lens, without the Jewish interpretive historical context, we will miss completely the depth, the breadth, the intimacy that Jesus is speaking to when he says this. Because, if, again, if you were listening to him through first century Jewish ears, you would have heard what he said and you would have been thinking, he's talking about a wedding. He's talking about a wedding. Why? Because ancient Jewish marriages, they, they, they differed in the sort of structure and style than our, our modern marriage process. That Today, you know, a couple meets, they start dating each other, there's this courtship period, and they maybe start talking about marriage, engagement, and hopefully they've discerned this, and then the guy, go, he goes and buys the ring, he gets down on one knee, will you marry me? She's crying, hopefully she's got her nails done. I've learned over the years doing marriage prep, that's a very important thing. A lot of grooms, been idiots, they proposed without having, you know, manicured nails on their brides-to-be. Anyway. Pops the question, she says yes, they begin the engagement journey and, you know, they'll meet with the priest, begin wedding planning, all that stuff. And the engagement season, being engaged is different than being married. I, again, I know we live in a fallen world and that's not necessarily true, but ideally, you with me? Ideally, being engaged is very different than the lived experience of being married. Very different. 
In the ancient Jewish world, there was really no such thing as engagement. Marriage had a two-step process, essentially. The first step was the betrothal period. It was the legally binding covenantal relationship that established the marriage. That's what was the beginning, and that preceded the seven-day wedding feast. Right? Seven days they celebrated the, match, the, the wedding feast, and that culminated in the night of consummation when the couple came together and consummated their union in one flesh. So betrothal was the first part of marriage. It wasn't engagement. It was truly the first part um, of the legally binding covenant. Think of Mary and Joseph, right? They were, they were married, but she says, like, before they lived together, the angel came to her, right? Mary and Joseph. So to enter into betrothal in the ancient Jewish world, the young Jewish bridegroom-to-be, he would approach his uh, bride-to-be with a cup of wine. And he would say to her, he would present this cup of wine, and he'd say, this is the cup of my covenant. Does that sound familiar, Catholics? Go like this. Yes, yes. This is the cup of my covenant. She would take it, she would receive it. So the Last Supper, friends, Holy Thursday, the Last Supper wasn't merely the... It wasn't simply the Passover Seder. It wasn't simply the Passover the Messiah. Of course it was. Jesus reinterpreting the Old Testament Passover in light of himself. But it was, it was the Passover of the bridegroom. This was the betrothal of the bridegroom. This is God in the flesh, Yahweh in the flesh, the divine bridegroom, betrothing himself to humanity, saying, essentially, these are my vows. That's what he was doing. It was a nuptial scene. Okay, but what about this whole in my father's house business? Okay, back to the history lesson. So after the young man presents the cup of wine, after she receives it, they would be betrothed, and then he would then depart from her. He would go back to his father's house, and he would begin construction. On what, you ask? He would begin building an addition onto his father's house where, after completion, him and his wife, they would move in together, and they would begin their married lives in that new house attached to his father's house. Now, do we, anybody want to bring that tradition back? Anybody? I don't think so. Okay, I think that's a good one that we let go. So, so this past February, when Deacon Rich and I and a few parishioners, we were on that pilgrimage to the Holy Land, we went to Capernaum, the ancient city of Jesus, and we got to see the ancient ruins of the, of the ancient habitations of Capernaum. It's, it, you can view it from above, and it looks like this, like this maze of all these little rooms and corridors and, and walkways and and what happened was over, this, over the generations, as marriage, you know, led to new marriage, there's all these little rooms that get added on, and it just becomes this convoluted maze of, of living quarters. And uh, when I say house, I'm really talking about like a little room, and we're not talking about a house house. So the bridegroom would begin construction of this addition, and it was the father's, it was his father's job to oversee this work. And this is where it gets really interesting. Because it was the father's sole prerogative to determine when construction was completed. It was the father who had the say-so to say to his son, all right, son, good job, it's done. Now let's go get your wife, let's get this party started. He was the one who would determine. And when he determined it, it didn't matter what time of day it was, the bridegroom and his best man, known as in Hebrew the shosh beam, they would blow these big ram's horns called shofars, these trumpets, you know, they would signal to the town, it's time to start the wedding. They would go get the bride. They would bring her back with lit lamps, these torches, the bridal party, the, the bridesmaids, essentially. Think of the wise and foolish virgins, right? They would then be begin the wedding feast. They begin the wedding feast. Remember that time when Jesus is talking about his second coming, about his second coming, how he says, it'll be like the days of Noah. This is an Advent reading. 
He says, but about that day when I return, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, if you're a first century Jewish person, you're like, well, of course. That's how this works. Only the Father knows when it's time to return to begin the wedding feast. Friends, the Son, the divine bridegroom Jesus, who entered into betrothal with our humanity at the Last Supper, like who began the marriage, that's what Christianity is. It's the nuptial union of heaven and earth, bridegroom and bride, Jesus and the church. He will return to take us to himself, to bring to completion what began 2,000 years ago at the Last Supper, what we enter into every single Mass. What do we say at the beginning of every single Mass? This is the pledge of future glory. That's what this is. The book of Revelation, the end of the story. We see heaven open, and it's described, John sees it as a wedding feast, where the bridegroom, the Lamb of God, is united to his bride, the church. The union, the, the depth of our hearts, the longing for connection with God that we all have in this life is brought to completion in heaven. That's what we enter into at this altar, every single Mass. This is the lens to view our reality. Like when we sing, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. We are joining our voices with the angels in heaven who are singing the same thing. Read the book of Revelation. Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God. Where are you at that point in Revelation? You are at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Then I'll elevate the chalice and host. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Jesus isn't just throwing like a dinner supper. This is the, this is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Friends, this is the heart of the bridegroom that he longs to gather us in. This is the lens to view this, this thing called Christianity. This is what we're doing here. This is what we're doing. Like, I know for maybe some of us, this language might seem really intense and like, is this really true? Like, but seriously, ask yourself, like, what do you think this is all about? Like, what we do here, Sunday after Sunday, like, it's, it's, just, it's not just because Deacon Rich and I love getting dressed up like Liberace and like talking to people for like a few hours. Like, I look really good in pastels. I could use a different color palette than black, right? Like, what are we doing here? This is the divine bridegroom. This is God himself who says, I adore you. I see you. Like, you matter to me. And I want to join my life to your life. I want to put my life in your heart, in your body. I want you and me to be connected. That's his desire, to pour his life into our life. You know, this season of the church right now, we're, we're celebrating all sorts of great sacraments. We've had first communions. We've got confirmation coming up. We've got a first communion at this mass. Angelo, he's going to be making his first communion. That's that dapper young, raise your hand, Angelo. That dapper young man right there, he's making his first communion in this mass. Like, every single one of us, when we made our first communion, the Lord Jesus is completing the betrothal. He's saying, I want to give myself to you. Like, you have no idea how much I love you. You can't possibly fathom it. I adore you. I adore you. Friends, let's open our hearts. Let's, let's get these right lenses on to see what we're doing here. Because the reality, like, we don't know if this is our last Mass. None of us knows. 
there was, uh, there was a, a sign in a sacristy in a, in a parish that I celebrated Mass in not too long ago that was speaking to the priest as he was getting invested. It said, Father, celebrate this Mass like it was your first and as if it would be your last. Like this, that's for you. Receive Eucharist today as if, like it was your first and as if it would be your last. Open wide the doors of your heart to receive everything he wants to give you, which is everything he is.